Second Peter chapter one. As I said, we'll just continue going through Second uh, Peter this uh, during this season. Uh, Christmas morning, we'll we'll look at a text in particular on the the birth of of Christ, but. Uh, leading up to that time, since we just started Second Peter, we'll continue making our way through this short epistle. And uh, this morning, I want to look at verses 8 to 11, uh, picking up where we left off last week, verses 8 to 11. And we read here, beginning in verse 8, Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and referring to all of these different virtues and qualities that he's just mentioned in verses 5 to 7. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we have just read from the book of Romans, we have seen that your saving works towards your people is a matter of your electing love, your sovereign decree, your grace being freely given. So there is nothing that we can do to earn salvation, nothing we can do to earn favor and righteousness before you. We have to receive it as a gift. But once we have received the Lord, once we trust in the Lord, you call us to now grow up into our faith, grow up into maturity, grow up more into Christ. You call us to be holy as You are holy. You call us to no longer give ourselves to the lusts of the flesh, but to bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness. And Lord, as, we, as we've just read this text from Peter, it comes with a great promise that if we remain on this if we continue trusting in the Lord and we persevere in that faith and we pursue righteousness and good works, it will result in salvation, in life, and in entrance to the eternal kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that your grace, that our faith would not in any way lead us to spiritual idleness, 
that we would be all the more diligent to work and to confirm our calling and election. Pray that you would teach us this day from your word and stir us up to love and good works. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our subject this morning, and uh, what we'll look at from our passage, is the perseverance of the saints. Now, this is a phrase that has long been used by those in the Reformed tradition to describe the relationship between God's sure promises that He will never lose a single one of His sheep and the responsibility of those sheep by faith to work and strive after holiness and godliness. It is a phrase and a doctrine that is very much opposed to the more superficial but very common idea of once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved doesn't always imply this, but in, in many uh, popular evangelical circles it is often used uh, in such a way that it, it basically refers to easy believers. It's the idea that as long as a person makes a profession of faith, as long as they have been baptized, as long as they've walked an aisle, as long as they've done something to declare themselves as believers in Jesus, it does not matter what their lives look like afterwards. It does not matter uh, what comes uh, after their initial profession of faith, and perhaps even the profession of faith for the first year or two or more. It doesn't matter if there's any real transformation. It doesn't matter if their lives are marked by faithfulness and obedience to Christ. When they believed, they were saved. And if they go on living lives that are characterized by moral filth and sin, they'll still go to heaven. Because once saved, always saved. Now again, this is very different from how the Bible speaks of our eternal security. How the Bible speaks of our assurance of salvation and the sovereign hand of God keeping those who are His. It's very different from how the Bible speaks of our sanctification. It does not state in any way that our faith can be of such a kind that it produces no fruit at all, or that it doesn't last. Scripture gives no hint of that. In fact, it states the contrary very clearly. Uh, the book of James, for example, speaks of this kind of dead faith, a faith that is really nothing more than a profession. Words that are uttered, but that does not involve the heart, that does not produce any fruit, that, that does not produce good works, transformation. James chapter 2, verse 14 says, 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? He's, he's using his mouth. And he's saying, I believe in Jesus. He's saying, I have faith. He's uttering that phrase. He's, he's identifying himself verbally with the gospel, with Christ and the people of God. That, that's what he's saying. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, again, that fruitless faith, that mere word faith, can that faith save him? And the implied answer is no. That's a dead faith. So scripture does not teach that a person can merely profess faith and then go on living their lives in ungodliness. Go on living in continual rebellion and disobedience to the Lord. Now it teaches that those who belong to God and who have been sovereignly elected and called by the grace of God will be kept by that same grace. They will never lose their salvation, but they will show forth and evidence the truth of their salvation by a life of increasing godliness. This is one of the reasons why those in the Reformed tradition throughout history have preferred to use the language of perseverance. Those who truly belong to God will persevere to the end. This implies that they're doing something. They're not just sort of passively believing and thinking that grace just sort of infuses them with this righteousness and they do nothing. They're working. They're, they're acting on the basis of the grace that they have received. Their faith is leading them to act in a particular way. The London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 puts it like this. It says that those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace. But they shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So notice that there is, on the one hand, the recognition that salvation is a sovereign work of the grace of God. It is God who accepts us in Christ. It is God who effectually calls and sanctifies us by His Spirit. It is God who gives to us our faith, our precious faith. As we have even seen in the beginning of 2 Peter, we have obtained a faith from the Lord. And it is God's grace that keeps us so that we will never finally fall away. And as God's sovereign grace does these things for His people, it 
produces a people who shall persevere. They will remain faithful to God until the end because God himself is upholding them and working in them. They may indeed at times fall into sin over the course of their lives, but they will never finally fall away. They will repent. They will turn to the Lord and obey the Lord from the heart. They will persevere in faith and in holiness, and they will do so because the grace of God is at work within them. That's the basic idea of the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And this is also the idea that we find here before us in our text from 2 Peter. Peter has, of course, earlier already spoken of the grace of God that is at work within us. That God has given us faith. He's given us His promises. He's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And here in our passage, he exhorts believers to persevere, to pursue good works, not apart from faith. We we don't ever leave faith behind. We don't ever attempt to grow in sanctification by works of the law. We always do all things by faith. We don't do good works that are contrary to faith or ever as a means of meriting our salvation, but again, as an act of faith, as a work of faith that proves and shows forth the reality of saving faith and the grace of God within us. So, as we consider this larger subject of the perseverance of the saints, I want us to look at it this morning in four parts. The first thing I want to consider is the work of perseverance. We'll look first of all at the work of perseverance, and then second, the neglect of perseverance, the neglect of perseverance. Third, we'll look at the use of perseverance, and then last of all, the promise of perseverance. So, first of all, let's consider the work of perseverance. The saints of the living God are called to exercise their faith in good works that God has prepared for them. Now, last week we considered what some of these works are, what some of these things that we are to pursue are. Peter lists them in verses 5 to 7. Love, of course, being always chief among them. But I want you to notice what he goes on to say in verse 8. He says, for if these qualities, those qualities he just mentioned in the previous verses, and we could add to this many more qualities that we find in Scripture. Verses 5 to 7, of course, is not an exhaustive list of all of the things that a Christian is to do. But he says that if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being 
ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word ineffective is noteworthy. It's often used in other contexts in Scripture to refer to being idle or lazy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, for example, Paul there is speaking of younger widows and the need for these younger widows to remarry. They don't need to remain single for the rest of their lives, but they need to pursue marriage. And and he warns about some of the potential pitfalls of not doing so. And he says that one of the things that they fall into is that they learn to be idlers. Our our same word here. They're they're idle. They're they're doing nothing. In Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul there quotes a proverb about Cretans, where the Cretans are called lazy gluttons. They're, They're idle. It's the same word here. Idlers don't work. They're useless. They're lazy and ineffective. And that's the sense of the word here. Christians are not to be spiritually lazy. We are to be hard workers. The knowledge of Christ demands something from us. Faith is to be exercised. The grace of God is not to be used as a license to sin, but rather as oil that fuels the flaming light of righteousness. It is the the constant power of God that we need so that in faith we can carry out the words, the, the, the laws, the commands that He has given to us to obey. We are to pursue and live out godly virtues by faith. And as we do, Peter says, they keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful. We are, as Christians, we are constantly engaged in a war with sin. And sin has not yet laid down its arms. It hasn't surrendered. Herman Bavink, one of the uh, Dutch reformers, he, he once wrote this. He said that sin is not merely guilt, but it is also pollution. We're delivered from the first by justification, but from the second by sanctification. Which is to say that when we first believed in Christ, we were, of course, justified before God. We were pardoned of our iniquity. Our sins were forgiven. But the pollution of our sin has not yet vanished. The lust of the flesh still war against us and are opposed to the works of the Spirit. And all throughout the New Testament, we see that Christians both possess a new life and are forgiven of our sins now, and yet we are also called to work and to grow up into these very 
realities. In Christ, the Christian has really and truly put on the new man. We have become something new. We have become new creations, as if that is a done deal. It is a fixed reality. That is who we are in Christ. We've put away the old man. And yet, we are also told throughout the New Testament that we are to constantly put away the old man and constantly put on the new. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, says that we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Through Christ, we've crucified our sin. It's, it's dead. We killed it. We killed it through Christ. Christ killed it for us. It's an accomplished fact of reality. And yet, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, says that we are to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, etc. The flesh has been killed, and the flesh has to be killed every single day. We stand secure by faith that God has set us free, and yet that very freedom calls us to action. It calls us to go out and to fight. Not fight in the power of our own flesh. Not fight in the strength of our own resolves. But to fight with God with us. He goes before us. We pick up the sword. And then we vanquish the enemy that God has delivered into our hands. He has given us the promise that we have life in Christ. And now for the, the rest of our lives, we are to grow up into that very life that we possess by the Spirit. We are not to be idle, but we are rather to be warriors in a relentless pursuit of holiness. And as we persevere in this fight, as we continue throughout the rest of our lives to cultivate godliness, we will bear fruit, and that fruit will lead to eternal life. So there is a work that is involved in the Christian life. But second, I want us to consider the neglect of perseverance. The neglect of perseverance. Peter does give a warning here. He says in verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He is describing here the kind of person who makes a profession of faith, who claims to believe in Jesus and the gospel, and yet whose life is marked by ungodliness. He is really describing the same kind of person that James is describing when he's speaking of that dead faith. He's not talking about someone 
who has renounced Christ altogether. He's not talking about someone who's now a professing atheist, who doesn't believe in God at all, or who has turned to paganism. He is talking about someone who is continuing to profess the name of Christ, and yet whose life is denying that very profession. He likely has in mind here the false teachers that he will warn against in chapter 2, as well as all of those who are following them. Not only do these false teachers teach false doctrine, but their lives and the lives of those who follow them are characterized by sensuality, sexual perversion, and sexual sin. There is no evidence of the grace of God within them. They live just like the world, if not even worse than the world, and they use religion, and they use the gospel, and they use God's grace as a cover and a justification for their sin. Jude, of course, is a a parallel letter, speaks about the very same kinds of things, probably the very same kinds of false teachers. And when he speaks of these people in his letter, he refers to them as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're not denying Him with their words. They're denying Him by their actions, with their deeds. And we know that that's the case because they're still fellowshipping with the body of Christ. They're still present at the fellowship meals, the feasts, the Lord's Supper. They're still identified with the people of God, but they're denying Him by their very deeds. And many Christians today are practically the same. There are a variety of reasons for this, but of course it is not uncommon for the church to baptize someone as a new believer. And then you follow up with that person a year or two later, and you find that they've now divorced their wife, they're living with a new girlfriend, all while continuing to attend church, and tell everyone around them how much they love Jesus. Everyone knows that they've destroyed their family. Everyone knows that they are an immoral person. And yet they're posting on Facebook, they're posting on Twitter, they're slapping bumper stickers on their car, they're wearing I Love Jesus t-shirts. They are proclaiming to everyone that they are Christians following the Lord. And yet they're denying Him by their very deeds. And Peter has a description for these people. And it's not brother. It's not Christian. It's not forgiven. It doesn't matter if you wear a t-shirt that you got after you were baptized. I'm forgiven. That's not what they're called. 
it's blind. They're blind. He gives a further description. He uses another word that's translated here as nearsighted. The CSB has short-sighted there, but it's literally sort of communicating the idea of the eyes shutting. They can't see. They have no sight within them. They're wandering around in the dark. Their words are mere words because they cannot see anything. Not only are they described as being blind, but they also have amnesia. They've forgotten something. Peter says they've forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. And here he doesn't mean that they were really, truly regenerated if they are evidencing the fruit of unbelief and spiritual deadness. He's alluding here to their baptism and the external public way in which this person had at one time professed that their sins were washed away. But now they're denying that very reality. It would be very much like if we had someone here who for a long time has been a professing Christian who then starts pursuing a life of sin. There is a real external reality to their profession. There is something outwardly that we have seen that we can all point to and, and we can refer to. They've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They have publicly renounced their sin. They have confessed they are united to Christ. They partake of the Lord's Supper every single week. There are external realities that identify them as Christians. And if we were to sit down with that very person and we were to call them to repentance, there is a very real sense in which I could say to that person, you've been baptized. You're a Christian. You partake every week of the Lord's Supper. You proclaim publicly that you are identified with Christ. You say every single week that your sins have been cleansed, that Christ has washed your sins away by His blood and the work of the cross. Your sins were crucified at the cross. How then can you then go on living in sin? There's a very real sense in which we can continue to speak to someone and affirm someone as someone who is outwardly identified as a believer in Jesus and on that basis call them to repentance. We can appeal to their identity as a Christian and the realities that they profess in order to show that their moral life now is contradicting it. It is very much like what we find in Romans chapter 6, where Paul is confronting the error of using grace as a justification for sin. And what does he say? Right? How can we, who have died to sin, continue living in it? And then what does he talk about? Our baptism. 
We are outwardly identified as those who have died to sin. How can you then continue to live in it? And that's what Peter is doing here. And not just here, but really throughout this letter, as we'll see as we continue making our way through it. As another example, when speaking of the false teachers, he says in chapter 2 that they deny the master who bought them. They deny the master who bought them. But he also says of those same false teachers in chapter 2, verse 17, that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. That they have been designated. Jude talks about the fact that they've been designated from long ago for this condemnation. The, the, the sovereign hand of God has determined from long ago to bring them under judgment. So on the one hand, the Master has bought them. On the other hand, they are designated for judgment. This is what we see Peter doing here throughout his own letter. They are claiming, these, these false teachers are claiming to have the grace of God. They are claiming to believe in the grace of God. Again, they are continuing to publicly identify themselves with the body of Christ by virtue of the fact that they are still feasting with Christians as they gather together to worship the Lord. They are still saying that their sins have been cleansed. That the grace of God has been poured out in their lives. But their whole life is denying this claim. These words. These empty, waterless springs words. They are evidencing no fruit of genuine conversion. And so Peter says here in verse 9 that they're blind. They're forgetful. They have forgotten the realities of which they proclaim. They still claim belongs to them because they are going on living in sin. This is the case for anyone who claims the name of Christ and neglects to persevere in faithfulness and godliness. It does not matter how many times you say, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, Jesus has washed me of my sins, I love the grace of God. If your life is denying everything you profess to believe, your faith is evidencing itself to be a false dead faith. Your faith at the end will be revealed to be such in the final judgment. It will be shown to be nothing more than mere words that come out of a deceived heart. As Christians, we are to persevere in a faith that produces the fruit 
of good works. The genuineness of our faith is evidenced by, among other things, the good works that come from it. Which leads to our third point, which is about the use of perseverance. What does persevering in good faith, or persevering, excuse me, in good works done by faith do for the Christian? What does this do for us? Well, Peter talks about this in verse 10. He says there, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So let's work backwards here. You will never fall. If you make a habit of cultivating Christian virtues in your life, by faith, you believe that God has poured out His love in you. By faith, you believe that God's commandments, chief of which is to love God, to love your neighbor, to love your husband, love your wife, love your children, if you believe by faith that these commands are good commands that bear good fruit when they are done, when they are obeyed. And so by faith, you you determine to pursue love, loving God, loving your neighbor, loving your family every day. You're going to make war against your flesh. By growing in love, by obeying these good commands that by faith you believe are good commands. If you do these things, Peter says, you will never fall. If you've been, you've been cultivating, you've been feeding your faith with righteousness. And over the course of time, it has strengthened your faith and it's made you. A better man. It's made you a better woman. It's made you a better Christian. It's made you a more godly person. That habitual practice is the means God is going to use to keep you from falling. It's the means He's going to use to keep you from abandoning the faith altogether. Sometimes I think we think of we think of apostasy. We think of abandoning. Christ primarily as a matter of the intellect. It's, it's, it's something you, something somebody thinks through, right? They, they, they've come across some theological conundrum. They've come across some philosophical issue, something they see in the Bible. They think it's a contradiction. There's some intellectual matter, and they just can't come up with a sufficient reason. And based upon that intellectual matter, they abandon the faith. That's often how we think apostasy works. How how someone goes from being a professing Christian to a professing atheist or a follower of some other false deity. Friends, the reality is that that is never how apostasy works. Never. Apostasy is a matter of the heart. It is always, primarily, at root, a moral 
matter. When Paul spoke of false teachers wandering into vain discussions in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, he says that they did so because they swerved away from love. They swerved away from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Their conscience had gone bad. How? How does that happen? The conscience gets seared by a habitual pursuit of wickedness, of disobedience. Their hearts first went astray and pursued ungodliness. Apostasy always begins as a moral matter which then leads a person into heterodoxy, into myths, into false teachings, and into damnable worldviews. And so what Peter is telling us is that if we persevere, if we continue walking in and growing in the fruits of righteousness, we will not fall. If we continue guarding our hearts and pursuing that which is righteous and good, we will not have to fear the intellectual descent into myths and chaos because our heart is being guarded. Our conscience is being guarded because we're not day after day searing it with sin and evil. Moreover, he says, our practicing of righteousness will confirm our calling and election. It will, it will prove it to be true. It will evidence its genuineness. This, this speaks here of really the issue of assurance. How can I know that I'm a Christian? How can I know that I've been truly called, truly been saved? How can I know that I'm counted among God's elect, that my faith is not a false faith? And of course, on this, this question, Scripture provides a variety of evidences that strengthen our assurance. It's not just one thing. Sometimes people want to point to just one thing in particular, right? My baptism, uh, or my belief in Jesus. There's just one thing I can point to, and if I look at that, I know I'm saved. That's not biblical, though. Right? Scripture gives us a variety of evidences that inform our assurance. The ultimate one, of course, goes without saying. It's that you believe in Jesus. You, you love Him. You trust Him. You want to obey Him. You want to follow Him. He is beautiful to you. you. You look to His work on the cross for your justification before God. You are not trusting ultimately in your own life and in your own deeds as a means by which you can merit your way to heaven. Everything begins by looking to Christ 
and trusting in Him. You can never, in any aspect of your Christian walk, lose sight of Him. He's always primary. But there are also other things that can strengthen our assurance. Or, if they're neglected, they can weaken our assurance. The fact that the church baptizes us and through the Lord's Supper and membership in the church continues to affirm that we are believers is an evidence that strengthens our assurance. We have the external witness of the body of Christ bearing witness to us that we belong to Christ. They see Christ in us. They see the evidence of God and they The fact that the Lord disciplines us, as Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about, is evidence that we are His, and it strengthens our assurance. The Lord does not leave us in our sin if we fall, stumble, give in to temptation. He corrects us. He leads us to repent. That is evidence of His fatherly care towards us. And it strengthens our assurance. But of course, another one that we find of course, in our text, and, and this is also very prevalent throughout the letter of 1 John, is the practicing of righteousness. The good fruit that flows out of a renewed heart. The moral transformation of your life as a result of your love for Christ and the using of the means of grace is an evidence of your conversion and it strengthens your assurance. It confirms your calling and election, as Peter puts it. The Puritans are very helpful. Just a reminder, we have the Puritan paperback series in our our library. You can check those out. See Karen. They're very helpful in talking about the experience of assurance and how it can be strengthened or weakened based on our lives. If we are living in sin, it is right that our assurance of salvation be shaken. If it's not shaken, I'd be even more concerned. If you can go on sinning without any care in the world and continue believing that all is right between you and God as you day after day reject Him, that's far more dangerous. Because you are in that state completely blind. But one of the things that they often spoke of is the the pursuit of happiness in the Christian life that comes with having a strong assurance. And that assurance is strengthened the more we are day after day pursuing righteousness and good works and obedience to the Lord. If you want a 
stronger faith, a stronger walk with the Lord, a more satisfied walk, if you will. One of the things that you can do is, of course, not only use the means of grace at your disposal, read the Word, meditate on the Word, pray the Word, but obey the Word. Walk with the Lord, and your assurance will be confirmed, will be strengthened. And so as we persevere in our faith and in a life of godliness, our faith grows stronger and our assurance gets deeper. Lastly, I want to consider the promise of perseverance. The promise of perseverance. Peter says in verse 11, he says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Perseverance, again, does not mean that we work our way to heaven. The foundation of all our work is the grace of God at work within us. And if we could use a biblical illustration or metaphor, perseverance is very much like the path that we must take as Christians, as God's people, going through the wilderness. God has saved us. He has redeemed us from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Satan, the Pharaoh of sin and death. He has made us His people, and He is our God. But now, we've come into the wilderness, and He tells us that the road that we must take to enter into the promised land is going to come with many trials, many tribulations, many battles to be fought. But this is the way you must go. He tells us what the path towards the promised land is. And on this path, we will have to fight against enemies. We will have to take up a sword and wield it. Right? That's, that's work. That's labor. We may get bloody, we may get cut, we may get bruised, we may get exhausted. We are working, we are fighting. But God goes before us. He fights in the midst of us. And He protects our rear guard. We still have to work. We still have to go. We still have to walk through the wilderness and fight the battles, we still have to gather the heavenly bread each day. We have to march up hills and face our enemies, but God is always with us and always at work within us. And as we do these things, and as we trust in God's Word, that the path we're walking on is the path of life, and that the fight we're fighting is one that we can win because of the grace of God and because God fights for us. As we persevere through the wilderness, what is promised to us is that we will enter the promised land. Entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be granted and we will stand before him 
and we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And those words will, of course, not give us calls to boast in our righteousness. We won't hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, and then look at the whole of our lives and say, I knew I could do it. Thanks for letting me in, Lord. Wasn't that impressive, that life I lived? No, we will never boast because we will always understand that the only reason there was any faithfulness within us to begin with was because of the grace of God. We will still bow in humility even after hearing those great words. We will thank Him and we will praise Him and worship Him. But we will do so having persevered through the wilderness. We will do so having in our minds the memory of the many battles we fought in our pursuit of godliness and in our pursuit of the promised land of the kingdom of God. So friends, we are called not simply to be passive in our Christian walk, but to persevere, to walk in the wilderness, to fight the battles, knowing that God goes before us and having all of the assurance that God himself will lead us to the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and ask a blessing on his word. Father, it can be very tempting as we live in this world, as we are those who are presently in Babylon. It can be very easy become citizens of this kingdom, to live in accordance with the ways of the world, to go about our lives in ease and spiritual idleness. Lord, you have shown us the path to eternal life. It begins with your sovereign, gracious hand rescuing us from slavery. It ends with your sovereign, gracious hand bringing us into the promised land as we are led by the greater Moses, Jesus Christ. As you call us, Lord, to to go on a path, to go on a journey, to fight a battle against sin and the flesh. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would not lay down our arms in this battle, knowing that our sin has not yet surrendered, knowing that we have every day a sin that wages war within us. I pray, Lord, that by your grace, you would cause us to be a people who fight every day for holiness and for godliness. And that in this fight, Lord, we would shine forth the light of the gospel and the light of Christ. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.